Good morning and welcome. I'm glad you're listening in or watching in this week. I'm glad you could spend some time with us today. If this is your uh, first time with us in this format anyways, uh, or if you have a, a prayer request or a spiritual question, uh, we'd love to try to be helpful to you. Uh, there's a, a simple form on our website uh, called Connect. It's under the About uh, section. And uh, fill that out. That will notify us. And we'd uh, love to pray for you or correspond, uh, connect with you, uh, to be as helpful as we can, uh, both in this time and certainly in, in the days to come. Uh, we're glad you're here today. Uh, we're going to spend some time together in God's Word. But before we do that, would you pray uh, with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that your word never changes. We're thankful for the truths that it contains. We're thankful for what we can learn from it. So God, we pray that you would give us eyes to, to see today, that you would open our, our hearts to, to the truths that your, uh, your word will teach us. We pray for your spirit to be present, uh, to teach uh, in a way that only uh, he can. We pray for your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible and it's not open yet to Acts 19, we invite you to open it there. Acts 19. We have been following the Apostle Paul through his third and final missionary journey. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 18 the end of Acts chapter 18, we, we noted three examples of disciple-making disciples. Those were Paul himself, as he strengthened all the uh, disciples, chapter 18, verse 23, that was his intention to go to do. Then we saw Aquila and Priscilla instructing Apollos. And then we saw Apollos helping uh, the Ephesian believers at the end of the chapter. We noted those examples of, of disciples making better disciples. And we say around here that we exist to make more and better disciples. And here uh, in chapter 18, we have seen examples of, of making better disciples. Now into chapter 19, we're going to see from Paul himself how he made more disciples. Look at it in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. So we see that, that Paul was on his way to Ephesus. We knew that already, but, but uh, Apollos had gone to Corinth. Now Paul coming through the inland country to Ephesus. Uh, Paul arrives in Ephesus And he kept his promise. You might remember back to chapter 18 during his second missionary journey. He had a brief stay in Ephesus and he said that he'll return if the Lord wills. Well, he kept his promise and God willed and he came back. And this stop now in in Ephesus turned out to be a major stop in Paul's missionary journey as he remained there for two to three years As he came to the city, we learned that he found some disciples, is the language that Luke uses. And so interacting with these disciples, Paul 
asked them two questions, kind of diagnostic questions of, of what they believed. And he, we see that, that in verse 2, this is what Paul said, or what he asked. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Answer, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Uh, saying that, now when, when they say that, when they say that they have not heard of the Holy Spirit, that does not mean that they did not know about the Holy Spirit. It's probably not the most helpful uh, way that that uh, verse could be, could be written out. That wouldn't make sense because uh, the Old Testament talked about the Spirit. Rather, what they probably meant was that they had not heard whether the prophecy of the Spirit had been fulfilled. Uh, a different translation has this as their answer uh, to, to Paul's question of, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Nay, we did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was given, which would go along with John chapter 7, verse 39, that says, now he said this about the Holy Spirit or about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So these disciples uh, did not know that the Holy Spirit had actually come. We find out that they were, they were ignorant of this great event in chapter 2 that we call Pentecost, or the coming of the Spirit. So what we come to also find out about these men is when we hear the word disciple, we, we might think that that means disciple of Jesus, but really that's not what it means here. A disciple is just a learner or a follower. These were John the Baptist's disciples, not disciples of Jesus. The disciple here, this, this indication uh, does not indicate faith, but it indicates uh, their identity as a follower of someone or something. So they are what Alistair Begg called almost Christians. They had some knowledge. They had some things, uh, some knowledge of, of the Bible or, or the scriptures or of, of, of things about God, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. They did not know that the Holy Spirit was, was given, which meant, that they, which meant they did not have the Holy Spirit. And if they did not have the Holy Spirit, then they were not Christians. They were not converted. Ward Wearsby helps us here, and he says this, The witness of the Spirit is the one indispensable proof that a person is truly born again. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul makes it very, very clear. Without the Spirit, one cannot belong to God. One cannot be a Christian. So Paul, hearing this, that they, they don't know that the Holy Spirit has been given, he asks a second question in verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? Their answer, into John's baptism. Okay, so here's the John the Baptist connection. As we think back to chapter 18, we might remember that Apollos talked about um, John's baptism as well. So there's a similarity here, but that's where the similarities end. Because Apollos, uh, Apollos was competent in the scriptures. Apollos had been trained. Apollos was fervent in the Holy Spirit. So as one uh, commentator says, the differences here outweigh the similarities. 
These men were not like Apollos. Apollos was believed to be a Christian, uh, just needed to get some of his doctrine in order. These men do not even have the Holy Spirit, certainly were not Christians. But we might wonder, why did Paul ask about baptism to begin with? What's the point of bringing up baptism? Well, again, here, Warren Wiersbe helps us. Because in the book of Acts, he says, a person's baptismal experience is an indication of his or her spiritual experience. The baptism and our spiritual experience was, was very closely connected. Though baptism was not and is not necessary for salvation, it is, was and is the next step upon salvation. So th- those things were so closely connected to believe and be baptized that the baptism and, and your salvation experience were very, very closely linked. Paul goes on to, to explain to, to these disciples of John the difference between the baptism of John and Christian baptism. And he points to Jesus. Look at it in verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So John's baptism was pointing forward to Jesus. Whereas baptism today, Christian baptism since Jesus, looks back at what Jesus has already accomplished. John Stott says, in a word, these men were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. So so they they didn't understand that Jesus had ushered in a, a new day, a new age. And they did not know of the indwelling presence of God, the Spirit of God, at the moment of salvation. So how did they respond to this? Look at it in verse 5. Upon hearing this, that's what Paul had told them, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Different than being baptized in John's baptism. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. This has been called a mini a mini Pentecost. We remember chapter two when the Holy Spirit comes and they're speaking in tongues, right? Here's a, a mini version of that. They receive the power and the presence of the Spirit as Paul lays his hands on them. We see, we see this elsewhere in the book of Acts. Chapter eight, Peter and John do this. In chapter nine, Ananias does this to, to Paul, this laying on of the hands. But we find here in verse 6 that upon receiving the Spirit, they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying, which were both an indication of the presence of the Spirit of God. However, we do need to understand that this was not a universal experience, meaning it was not a normative event, not even in the book of Acts, because we don't see this repeated and in fact, this is, the last, uh, this is the last reference to anyone speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. And by, way, by, by the way, this, this mention of tongues is actually a language. It's not just a babbling or incoherent words. It's, it was actually understanding of a language. One commentator says, Nowhere in the scriptures are we admonished to seek the baptism of the Spirit or to speak in tongues. Uh, The baptism of the Spirit is that moment upon faith uh, where the Holy Spirit comes to us. That's the baptism of the Spirit. 
Uh, water baptism is, is our, our identification with Jesus. Those are two separate, separate things. But nowhere are we admonished to speak in tongues. That was uh, not something that uh, we are ever called upon to do. The baptism of the Spirit refers to salvation. When we are brought into the body of Christ by repentance and faith in Jesus. This is a one-time event, this baptism of the Spirit. Unlike this experience here in the book of Acts, the normal conversion experience was and is repentance, faith, indwelling of the Spirit, response of water baptism. That, that, that's the normative experience where we're convicted of our sin, our eyes are opened, we repent and believe. The Spirit comes to, to indwell the believer and then as a public sign of identifying with Jesus, uh, saying outwardly what's true inwardly, we testify by going public with our faith in water baptism. Paul explained to these men Jesus and the gospel, and they believed. Before they had met Paul, they they were religious but unconverted. They knew some things, but they did not know Jesus. They had not come to him in faith. Later, Paul would write to the church of Corinth. In his second letter to the church, he called them to, listen to this verse, this is chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And what's the test? The test is would they repent? Would they repent of their sin? Corinth was a, a, a pretty a wicked place. and There was sin that was involved in, in the church, and the, the call was to repent. Repentance is a, is a sign of faith. In 1 John, John offers three tests uh, of evidence of faith. There's multiple places you could see this, but, but he, here's one of the tests is, is a doctrinal test. Do you believe in Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, John says this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The second test is is an ethical test. Are you walking in light and in love? Chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And the third is experiential. Chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. By this we know he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Do you have the abiding presence of the Spirit with you? These are tests to to, to know. Paul says, examine yourself. John offers these these questions, these tests of, of whether or not we are actually in the faith. You see, being religious... And having religious knowledge is not the same thing as being converted. It's not the same thing as, as being indwelt by the Spirit, uh, by being a believer or, or, or a Christian. Those two things are not religious and Christianity are not necessarily the same 
thing. As we move to verse 8, we see Paul continuing to make more disciples. As he goes into the synagogue, he enters the synagogue. Now, you probably remember this, that as we've been going through the book of Acts, this is a normal experience for for Paul. This is kind of his MO. What, what he does when he gets to a city, he goes to the synagogue. And he, he goes into this uh, synagogue, which we, he had briefly been in, in chapter 18, when he visited uh, Ephesus. But now he's going to spend some more time. Look at it. Keep reading in verse 8. He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So boldly, he reasoned and persuaded them about the kingdom of God. So this word reasoning or reasoned, we see this multiple times here in Paul's third journey. And this was another word for discussing. It was evangelism by dialogue. And we see that this word appears in chapter 17 when he was in Thessalonica. Also in chapter 17 when he was in Athens. In chapter 18 when he was in Corinth. And also when he was the first time in Ephesus. Uh, Luke describes Paul's content of his persuasion and his reasoning as uh, talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, what do we know about the kingdom of God? We know this, that the only way one is part of the kingdom of God is by being born again. That's what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. No one is is brought into the kingdom but by grace, through repentance and faith. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. John MacArthur says the kingdom of God refers to the gracious domain of divine rule over the believer's hearts. The gracious domain of divine rule over the believer's hearts. Or maybe said a little bit differently, it's life under the rule of God. It's living in a way where God rules our, our life, our choices. In all of this ruling, all of this reigning in, in our hearts and in our lives is, is looking forward to the day when Christ comes in his second coming to rule and reign fully on this earth. So Paul was reasoning about these things. He was talking to him about, about what the kingdom of God is like and how do you get into the kingdom of God. And he did this for three months, which is a pretty significant amount of time, comparative to the other cities, but just like the other cities, after some time, opposition developed. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, stop right there. So this is how they reacted. So for three months, he's doing his, his reasoning and his persuading, but some persisted. And then they went on to slander, right, by speaking evil of the way. Uh, the way here refers to Christianity. It refers to the teachings of Jesus. We see this all the way back in chapter 9 with Paul himself, who was going to persecute the, the people who were of the way. Uh, the way was, was um, a, not a terribly inaccurate way to describe Christianity. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, The missionary work of Paul helps us to know that not everyone will believe the message of the gospel. 
uh, many will, in fact, reject. Many will remain in their unbelief. And it ought not to surprise us. It ought not to surprise us that people reject. What should more likely surprise us is that people believe. <laughs> I mean, so why, why that? Because faith is a gift and it's a miracle. It's not something I, I can create. It's not something that I can do on my own. It's not something I can make anyone else do. It is a, a miraculous gift of God as he works in our hearts. And so we see that there were some who, who rejected, some who remained in their unbelief. And yet we find that they weren't the only ones there. So due to the opposition, Paul responds by verse 9, withdrawing from them, and he took his disciples with him. Now, a few weeks ago in chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth, and there was a, a, another opposition. And Paul withdrew from that synagogue, and he actually went right next door, if you remember that story, and, and started teaching. Well, here he leaves this synagogue as well, and he goes to another place. As we've seen in the book of Acts, God uses opposition for the spread of the gospel. And we've seen this from the very, very beginning of the church. That even the opposition, though it feels like, man, that doesn't seem like that's a good thing. It is forcing the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see starting to happen or continuing to happen, we might say, with Paul. As he continues to make more disciples in the next verse, in reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. So this hall was a public place. It was a public place. And by going there, Paul's message would be heard by both Jews and Greeks. And so he goes to this public place and he starts and he continues uh, reasoning. Again, we see that word, reasoning daily. Um, and he did this for two years when Luke says daily, um, he may be indicating a time period of the day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And he, would, he did this daily, it says, for two years. Okay? Um, we also know this of Paul, that Paul was what is called a tent maker. He was a bivocational missionary, which means he paid his own way. Uh, he didn't, uh, no, no one paid for him. He paid his own way by working. So the work day in this time, uh, uh, in this place, began at 7 a.m. And then they would break at 11 a.m. And then they would resume at 4 uh, until about 9.30. And they would break at 11 a.m. because it was the hottest part of the day. It is said that because it was such a hot, hot part of the day, uh, midday, this is when people would take off time and they would actually go and they would take a, a midday nap. Now, some of you may be watching this, and it may be very close to 11 a.m. And I just want to ask you to stick with me right now. Don't, don't take your Sunday afternoon nap quite yet. You'll get it. Stick with me. We're, 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 getting, we're getting close. Uh, but theologian Kent Hughes suggests that if Paul taught five hours a day, which 11 to 4, uh, for six days a week, because he wouldn't have taught on the Sabbath, for 52 weeks of the year, for two years, that would equal 3,120 hours of teaching. That's, that's insane, right? That's a crazy amount of hours. But what it tells us about Paul is this. He was serious about his work. 
He was serious about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was serious about the commission of Jesus to his disciples. And what's the outcome? Verse 10. So that, so he did this, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What's the outcome? The outcome after two years of daily teaching and evangelizing, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. From Ephesus, the gospel spread. It went out from this hall to other places. More churches were planted, including churches, the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 2, 3, or 2 and 3, namely, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea are said to have come out of the church of Ephesus. Additionally, during his stay in Ephesus, Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. It was a productive, impactful time in the life of the church and in Paul's missionary journey. But that's actually not all that God did through Paul here in Ephesus. Uh, next week, we're going to see even more of what God was, was doing and the, the impact that Paul was making as he was making more disciples. Uh, we have said from the beginning of our study in the book of Acts that the book of Acts is the acts of Jesus continued by the Spirit through his apostles. And all of this is for the purpose of the spread of the gospel, as Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to the ends of the earth. That purpose continues today. That purpose continues today for Caro First Baptist Church. That we exist to carry on the commission of Jesus to his disciples to make more and better disciples. So as we listen and we read of Paul's encounters with, with the religious, these, these men who are ignorant and unconverted, it, it reminds us and tells us that the gospel must be proclaimed and received even by those who have some knowledge. They need to hear the gospel too. They have yet to believe on Jesus by faith alone. They need to hear the gospel. They've yet to receive the, the spirit. They need to hear the gospel. They need to know of this, the coming of the spirit that is the proof of faith. It is the evidence. It's the proof of conversion. Maybe you know a little bit about God. Maybe you know a lot about God. Maybe you know about the Bible. Maybe you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. There is an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Knowing about the Bible and knowing the God of the Bible. An eternal difference. Paul's ministry says to us, that we have a responsibility to speak the gospel, to speak it to the religious, to speak it in public life. And may God, and may God open the eyes and give faith and convert souls for his glory and for the advance of the gospel until Jesus comes. And may he use us to do it as we, his disciples, speak the gospel of Jesus. So the question is, 
how will you make more disciples of Jesus this week? You've seen the examples. You've heard the encounters. We know he can. We believe in the power of the gospel, we say. It is the power of God unto salvation. So who will you share it with this week? And how might God use you to make more and better disciples for his glory? May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks today that you are still at work, that the gospel is still spreading, that the gospel still is the power of God unto salvation, that there are people who have yet to hear or yet to respond to the gospel who need to, who need to hear it. And we're thankful that you may give to us the opportunity to share it. We pray that this week you might provide opportunities. We pray that you might give us the wisdom to see those opportunities and the courage to take those opportunities. And we would pray, God, that that according to your will, we might even see the fruit of the gospel even this week. God, would you help us to be a church that's not for ourselves, but is for the spread of the gospel. A church that that wants to see more and better disciples being made and are willing to step out in faith to make disciples. Would you use us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.